It's true. I'd walk across the earth. I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. We're back with our fifth episode with ski mountaineer and environmental advocate Caroline Gleick. Caroline has consistently pushed the envelope in the high alpine environment of the Himalaya, as well as at home in Utah's Wasatch Mountains. In 2017, she became the first woman to descend all 90 lines of the shooting gallery, Andrew McLean's guide to steep and extreme skiing in the Wasatch. She has also skied Choyoyu, the sixth highest peak in the world, summited Mount Everest, and skied the three tallest peaks in Ecuador in a weekend. Despite her accomplishments, Caroline has consistently had to battle misogyny, sexism, and doubters on an unprecedented level for a professional athlete. We talk about these topics at length in our conversation, as well as the larger gender bias implications in the outdoor space. Caroline also tells us about the vitriol of the cyberbullying she has experienced throughout her career, and more importantly, how she has chosen to combat and beat it. We also talk about the importance of her family, how losing several close friends in the mountains drives her to this day, her anxiety and depression, and her outspoken defense of environmental and social causes. I think you'll appreciate this intimate and insightful chat with one of the most accomplished ski mountaineers of our day. you're originally from Minnesota. Yeah, I was born and raised in Rochester, Minnesota, uh-huh. in the southeast corner. It's pretty close to Iowa and Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. So is that Midwest, technically? Yes, yeah, the Midwest. Yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. And growing up, did you have siblings? I have three old. I have three brothers, two older, one younger, and I have three half-siblings. Wow. Yeah, so it's a, we're quite the crew. It's a big family. <laughs> it's a big family, especially now that my brothers and we're married with children. It's like we have to arrange like sprinter van transportation or we no longer fit in even just like two vans. It's kind of a junk show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fun. I like it. I mean, I think growing up with a big family, it was challenging because my parents both worked full time and we had like 19 nannies throughout my childhood. But I think it kind of gave me the hustle for what I do now because no one ever listened to me. I had to really like scream to make my voice heard in my mouth, in my family. And I think those qualities have translated really well into my career. Right. Because like as a pro athlete, you know, you really have to hustle and you have to be the squeaky wheel who gets the grease. So mm-hmm. you kind of just have to be always following up and hustling. And, and so I think in a way it was a blessing to be from such a big family. Right. Mm-hmm. And those brothers are probably pretty fun to play with growing up yeah I felt really lonely when I was growing up because my two oldest brothers were pretty similar in age and then my little brother was about four years apart from me and my mom was always working and so I really longed for a female figure in my life or like I really wanted a sister or a twin just like someone to play with that I could talk to and be girly with Mm -hmm. and just yeah I, I felt really lonely for a lot of my life and the Minnesota growing up there it's not like the west where in the winter you can just get outside and go for a walk like it's brutally cold and you know the whole movement of like yeah just get outside be outside more it just it's not something you can do in the midwest right so I really struggled with those long cold dark winters when I was growing up and it was a challenge for sure but it sounds like you moved to Salt Lake pretty early on in your I moved 
I moved to Salt Lake with my family when I was 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but it wasn't early enough because I'd always wanted to be a ski racer because growing up, you know, I was like a nineties kid. So ski racing and ski mountaineering were the coolest things. It was sort of the golden era of ski mountaineering. And then seeing like Peekaboo Street in the Lillehammer Olympics, I like made my first AOL username, Pika, because after Peekaboo, like Pika722 was my username (laughs) and I just wanted to be a ski racer so I I was an hour from the nearest ski resort and my parents we just didn't have the resources for me to get there and it's just like we had one nanny there's four kids there's no way that that could happen and there was no one in my town who ski raced because I looked to try to find someone to get a carpool with and so when I moved to Utah I went to a, a private school that had a ski racing academy and I was seeing if I could race for them but the principal told me I was too old to start when I was 15. And I just remember being in the office. I was devastated because I, I thought that that was like my Your calling. calling. Yeah. And I just remember feeling like so devastated. Right. And I didn't have like, I didn't have rock skis or powder skis. Like I just had some old hand-me-downs from my brothers. I didn't have goggles. I skied in sunglasses. Nice. And I never got my own pair of skis, like a brand new pair of skis till I was sponsored. I always had like used skis or hand whatever I could get my hands on. Right. Or like the first sponsorship I had, the rep lent me some demos with like huge, really heavy track bindings on them. But I was like so stoked because I'm like, finally, my own pair of skis. It's working. Yeah. 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 And do your folks still live in Salt Lake now? Yeah. My parents both live and work in Salt Lake and they work at the University of Utah. Are they professors or? Yeah. They're, my mom's a dermatologist and my dad is an immunologist. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you come from good good genes smart genes <laughs> well yeah they're really nerdy <laughs> they're very academic and and um you know i always wanted to be into sports and my mom even now she's like doesn't like to watch the olympics because she doesn't see the value of sports so it's a little bit i mean i love my mom and but like it's sometimes i feel like i wish we had more in common in like being able to exercise or do things outside together. Right. Yeah. So you're closer with your dad? Yeah, I ski with my dad. So my dad's quite, he's a bit older. He's 87, but I still ski with him at Alta. And he hikes up this mountain behind his house and it's like 1500 vert. And he does it sub one hour. All right. My dad is like my, I mean, both of them are huge inspirations for me. But my dad, especially as he's gotten older, you know, I really want to, spend more time with them and take advantage of these times that we have while he's still like very with it and fit. Lucid, yeah. 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 So it's really fascinating for me to see like the different relationships that people have, mother, father, you know, mm-hmm. what's stronger and and, and the whys between those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little focused on my spending time with my dad right now because I feel like he's not going to be around as long as my mom. And I really want to make like a film or maybe like a recording of my dad so that if he doesn't get to meet my kids, it's like, I get so emotional talking about this, but it's just one of those things where I'm always like, I'm a planner. I'm always thinking ahead. So I'm like, I have to hurry up and have kids so that my dad can meet them. Right. Cause it would break my heart if he, if my kids never got to meet my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, but he must have been then, what, late 40s when he had you? He was, like, mid-50s. Mid-50s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he's, like, the biggest, the oldest, like, child ever. Uh I mean, he's, like, a child at heart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of weird, but it was also kind of awesome. And having older half-siblings 
we just had a lot of people to watch us and, you know, it was a little chaotic, but it's nice to have a big family. Right. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I don't know if I, I don't, I'm not going to have a family that size. <laughs> Six kids people or whatever. Seven total. Yeah. We don't do that anymore, but yeah. Yeah. But it's nice to have a lot of people like that. Yeah. Family is the best. Yeah. I, I definitely appreciate it more and more the older I get. I've always appreciated it, but yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of magical to, to ebb and flow with your with your family absolutely yeah it's really interesting but it sounds like in in reading about you you lost your half-brother in an avalanche yeah my half-brother was killed in an avalanche when i was 15 and what what role did he play in your life well so he didn't like live with our immediate family but we'd always go and spend time with him in utah and so every year we'd do a ski trip in the winter and then a backpacking trip in the summer Mm. so he taught me how to rock climb and how to like tie a figure eight knot and on our backpacking trips, he would take a rope and set up a top rope so I could climb. And I think we had a lot of similar personality traits, Martin, my half-brother, and I. Because we both just loved to be in the outdoors, and we really bonded over that. And so when I would go to visit in Utah, he would take me, like, we'd go ice skating at the rink. or He just loved to be active. And we really bonded over, like, the love of the mountains and climbing. Right. Yeah. Awesome. And he would, like, take us to Alta. And I think he, or maybe it was my aunt, told me about, like, the famous party at the end of the year on top of High Boy at, um, on top of Elf's High Rustler at Alta. And it's, like, this super iconic last day of the season party. Right. When I was, like, 13, that was, like, all I wanted to do. I was, like, just move me. I want to move to Utah. I'll, like, find a family who will foster me. And <laughs> <laughs> Or I was, like, hoping my parents would send me to live with my aunt and uncle. I just really always wanted to move to Utah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he had a really big role in my life. The person who teaches you how to tie a figure eight knot, like, that's a big deal. Right. And I'll never forget, you know, he just taught me, like, to keep it really pretty. This is the knot that will save your life. Mm -hmm. So make sure it's all well-dressed and just all those little things. Like, it's hard to forget the person who teaches you that. How did you balance your ascension in your professional career with that as a backdrop? Was it hard? Yeah, it made it really difficult to get into backcountry skiing because it was so raw for my parents when I was 15, 16, 17, 18. I mean, still, it's very raw for my family. So you lost him when he was, you were 15? And he was 37. Right. So just after you had moved to? No, before we moved. Before, okay. We moved because he died, uh, partly, because his wife was pregnant. Oh, Jesus. And then he was a physician at the U as well. He was a pulmonologist. So so my parents sort of found jobs and networking through his like funeral and stuff in a weird twist of fate. Huh. Yeah, but they had been kind of looking to make a move right. out of Rochester for a while. So then we moved shortly after he died. I was basically forbidden from backcountry skiing. And I was like, let me just take my skis and I'll just hike up that hill. And, I'll, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do, I was not supported by my family in doing that. So I had to learn how to do it all on my own. And I took a job at REI as a greeter and a cashier. And I got my saved up and bought a beacon probe and shovel, saved up for my Abbey One. And I started coaching as well at the Utah Olympic Park. So I coached randomly. I wanted to learn how to do flips. This was like one of those things in my career that didn't go anywhere, but sometimes you have to try something to figure out what you don't want to do. But I like wanted to learn how to flip off cliffs. So I started figuring out a way to train at the Utah Olympic Park. And they told me I could get, like, free training if I coached. So I coached kids, very intro-level kids and adults, too. So I started coaching, and and I'd ski every day I could. I went to the University of Utah. Right. And I took my spring semesters off to ski. So I'd go in the fall and the summer, and I would just ski every day all spring. 
So huge mentorship there. He, yeah. he kind of opened the door to your entire family, maybe move, even moving to Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah. In a twisted about way. Yeah, totally. But then at the same time, I it was always hard for me to tell my... Like, I would never lie to my mom, but it was hard to tell her. Like, she'd be like, what are you doing tomorrow? And I'd be like, well, I didn't want to tell her because I knew she would worry. Right. I still don't want to tell her when I'm going on an expedition or something because I'm not going to lie to her. Like, I'll tell her, but it's hard for me to tell her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She stays up all night watching my little blinky thing, my tracker go up mm-hmm. the mountain and it's cute. I mean, when I get on the summit, she's like she sends me she's like, Looks like you summited on show you. She was all excited, but I just know that it's stressful. So right. I feel guilty. How do you honor Martin in your current career? I and mean, is he with you there in the I think like a couple years ago over Christmas, I took his son. His wife was pregnant when he was killed. I took his son backcountry skiing. Cool. Yeah. So I'd like to ski more with Elliot. If you're listening to this, Elliot, we should go skiing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's hard. He, he plays soccer. He has a busy... We both have really busy schedules, so it's hard to figure out the best time. I mean, I don't... I skied the line where he was killed a few years ago. That was, like, a really heavy experience. I think I... Oh, one of his friends came to one of my slideshows the other day at a shop in Boulder. And it was really cool to hear his friend come up and be like, Martin was a good friend of mine. Oh, cool. And he'd be really proud of you. Right. And this was like last week. Right. That was pretty heavy. Yeah, that's emotional. Yeah, yeah it was. So I feel like I honor him just by being me and doing what I was meant to do and mm-hmm. following my heart. Yeah. It's not necessarily one specific thing. It's everything. Right. Some yeah. of the parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how we have these mentors when we're young or getting into these sports that yeah. can be so long lived in our lives that are super instrumental and we might not even realize that at the time yeah but they kind of lay out a blueprint and they might not even know it at the time yeah you know we talk a lot about mentors and what that means and why and mm-hmm. you know kind of the the esoteric invisible hand there mm-hmm. how do these people come into our lives and right do I, what they do i think another way i honor him is by making very conservative decisions with snowpack in the backcountry i saw the pain that losing a child inflicted on my parents and from the moment I started skiing in the backcountry it was just not an option for me not to come home so I'm pretty conservative right <laughs> yeah Which like it's totally fair yeah even to this day it's a wonder I get out of the house at all yeah. <laughs> into the mountains yeah. but I like to wait until we have a good spring snowpack to ski the bigger lines mm-hmm. and when it's early season the days are shorter you know, I like to get an early start and I don't like to go do something big in the afternoon just in case something goes wrong and you need help because it's a lot harder to get. I think about all these little things all yeah. the time. Well, that's probably what's made you successful too. Yeah, I think it's in been a, big way. a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. And you were also close with Liz Daly. Yeah. Who was killed in Avalanche. She sounded like a very special human. Yeah, Liz was the best. I really wish the world could know her more because she was really just beginning to build her career. And so kind of how I got to know her, a lot of the trips I would go on for my teams and stuff, I was one of the only women. And it really brought me back to those feelings of my childhood of being so lonely and just longing for a friend, you know, someone who looked like me, someone I could be feminine and girly with. Mm -hmm. And so I had gone on all these work trips and then all of a sudden, there's this new woman on my Patagonia team. And I met her in the Santiago airport in Chile for like my first you know, South American photo shoot is a big deal for me. And we instantly clicked. She was my best friend just right away. 
And it just filled this deep hole, this like deep longing that I'd had, this loneliness. Right. And just being on a, on a sponsored team together, we had the ability to like pitch trips and do all these things that our hearts desired. And we always had these big dreams of doing this Borker Ridge Traverse or going to take our skills to the highest peaks in Alaska. And she was so capable and competent. And she was a mountain guide. So I was like, I have so much to learn. Like, I have to keep up with her. And she was a year older than me. But she was a lot taller. She's really strong with a heavy pack. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to train so hard and learn so much. So we can go do the Forker Ridge Traverse. So the last trip we did before she died, we did go to Alaska. So I'm happy we got to go to Alaska. But... I mean, that one is still, it's been only four years and it's, it's still really raw. Mm -hmm. It hurts a lot. And I miss her so much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard when we lose people and we, we talk a lot about loss yeah. with our guests, you know, mm -hmm. cause everyone from myself to you, to everyone living in a mountain town has experienced some shade of that mm -hmm. loss, you know, and yeah, it's always fascinating for me to see how different people cope with that yeah. you know if you can even cope with losing someone who's so close to you yeah how was your journey there was that it was ongoing really it sounds brutal. like i mean it still is a big hole in my heart i would love to have another female partner like her another sister but, yeah you know she'd wear mascara pluck her eyebrows on the glacier and wear like sparkle nail polish, all this over the top stuff. But she taught me that it's okay to be who I am. Mm -hmm. That it's okay. I don't have to pretend to be one of the guys and to pretend to be like bro bra. I can be a feminine crusher and leader. And so I really appreciate that. Right after she died, I met my fiance a couple days after. And he is in a weird way similar to Liz. I sort of feel like he was a gift to me. And so he's very fun and loves to have dance parties and um, he loves dress up for retro ski parties and he just brings that like fun and lightness mm -hmm. and reminds me it's okay to be who I am. Right. So I sort of feel like he's a reincarnation of Liz right. in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I've always wondered with friends that I've lost if they're always bright lights mm -hmm. and it's devastating that they burn out fast but it's almost to me I've, I've wondered is if that's just how it had to be because they had so much to give in a short amount of time yeah I don't know about that the burnout and the, the bright light thing I don't know if I relate to that but I do see Liz in the moon because when we were on the glacier in Alaska we saw this beautiful lunar eclipse under the dark night sky up there and the night I met Rob was also a lunar eclipse and so I see her in the moon and that's how I the light thing that's too, like, happy. Like, the moon is the darkness, uh -huh. and the full moon is, like, when I see Liz and my grandma and all those people. So, yeah. Because yeah. it's at night. Yeah. I don't see her in the sun in the daytime. Right. Yeah. Maybe in the future. Maybe in the future I will. Yeah. But I really wish she were still here with us. Yeah. Yeah. What I really love about you is how multifaceted you are. You know, like you were just saying, it's... It's okay to be feminine in the mountains, and I think being a bro bra is overrated, so <laughs> kudos to not uh, trying to be that. But in today's day and age, do you think professional athletes have a responsibility to use their platforms to enact some semblance of change? I think so. I think, I mean, that's a hard question, because I hate to tell people what they should or shouldn't do or to be like, to dictate other people's terms. I think if it's something they're passionate about, 
and it feels natural. I mean, I think we should all be doing that, not just professional athletes. I guess that's where I stumble a little bit because I don't think that being a professional athlete changes anything. I think it's a basic responsibility of being a good person, being a citizen in America too. Right. Yeah. I mean, but bigger than that. Yeah. I think I'd like to see more people use their voices to try to make the world a better place. Right. Yeah. Right I think it's all of our responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes people put athletes on a pedestal and really it's something that anyone can do and you don't have to be a celebrity or have a huge social media following to be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're very active with Protect Our Winners. Yeah. Um, and for me, as someone who earns a living mm-hmm. running a ski shop, they're particularly close to my heart. How'd you become affiliated with them? It was through my ex-boyfriend, Forrest Shearer. So he's a pro snowboarder in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And he was friends with Jeremy. And he worked on with Jeremy on this film way back in the day called My Own Two Feet. And I thought it was really cool to see like a whole human-powered film. Because I'd always been drawn to the backcountry and to that side of things. But I'd never, you know, when you start out as a pro skier, you kind of think your dream is to go heli skiing. But then to see a different kind of dream, it really sparked my curiosity. And so Forrest introduced me to Jeremy. And then Forrest and I got more involved with Protect Our Winners. And we helped start the Riders Alliance. We were some of the first people involved. And we did the first Hot Planet Cool Athlete School Assembly. And that was really cool to be a part of that. And And what was that exactly? The Hot Planet Cool Athlete There's school assemblies where we go and talk to students about how climate change is affecting the snow sports industry. And we give them tools for how they can take action. Super cool. Yeah, it was really fun. The first one had like a thousand kids. It's high school students. So it was a really cool age. And it was a big deal. It was during Winter OR 2011. And our Cliff Bar team manager was there. And it was just, it was a big deal. So it was cool to be a part of that. Yeah, I've been a part of the organization for, not since the beginning, but pretty close. Yeah, since the start of the Riders Alliance, which is the Coalition of Athletes. Yeah. Yeah. And I had always been searching for a way to figure out how to use my platform and best affect change. I had been trying to figure this out for a while and like did a lot of research. And I had done a political internship for the governor of the state of Utah's environmental advisor, Ted Wilson, before I joined POW. So I knew quite a bit about energy and climate policy. I wrote a paper that was published in a political journal for the University of Utah Hinckley Institute of Politics. Yeah, about the energy policy, uh, the governor's 10-year energy plan, basically like ripping it apart. (laughs) It was a critique. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so I knew quite a bit about that world, and I knew I wanted to to have a positive impact and that we needed to dramatically reduce carbon emissions. So partnering with PAL was a really natural extension of my the, my own work that I'd been doing. Right. Yeah. It was yeah. fun. Super... I mean, it's really fun, like going to D.C. with PAL. That was a huge highlight. I've been right. on two trips with them to lobby and one trip to attend the climate march. Right. Yeah. What are the tangible differences you've seen or the progress? There's been some big wins. There's been some setbacks. I mean, one of the big things is um, like, for instance, in September 2015, when I spoke at the Park City Council meeting where the council was voting on a on an initiative to go 100% renewable by either like 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And a couple of us in the snow sports industry attended, spoke up, and we convinced them to go with the most aggressive 
initiative to go 100% renewable by 2030. So that set sort of a framework that Salt Lake City, Moab, and a bunch of other cities have adopted since then. It wasn't like POW was there, but I think that some of that momentum was started by POW for sure. We've helped grow the political lobby inside of it and just getting more people to speak up about climate. And I'm sure that they could go into more tangible wins, but I mean, changing the world (laughs) and these sorts of big scale changes we're trying to see, they're not often, it's not like you go to DC and you can measure like X number of whatever was accomplished. Like it's often slower than that. Very slow. Yeah, it's very slow. And so if we can keep moving the needle... I mean, we need dramatic change quicker, but it's just there's good things happening locally, and then there's been some good things on the national level. There's been setbacks, but overall, just getting more people to find their voice and speak up about climate, I think that's been a huge thing. So you obviously find it very rewarding. Yeah. Like you perk up when you talk about it. Well, I I mean, you're always perked up, but... no. It's become a lot more challenging in the political climate today. Yes. Whereas it used to be that climate was a bipartisan issue. It was easy to speak up about it. And now it's a lot harder. I also have a much bigger following. And so what kind of bums me out is that people get really hung up when you speak about climate, about your personal footprint. And the thing is, is that everybody is going to have a footprint. Yeah, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. I would just say that... There's a Yvonne Chouinard or Vincent Stanley quote, I can't remember which one, that's like, no human economic activity is truly sustainable. So talking about sustainability is the wrong way, the wrong metric. I really believe in talking about responsibility. And so what bums me out is when people get really hung up on the fact that I went to the Himalayas and they go deep into these ad hominem attacks. And those things, they're hard to overcome. And I think people are missing the point by focusing on that because the effect you can have by asking your city council to go with a more aggressive climate policy and energy portfolio is a million times what you could ever do on a personal level. And so by pushing like industry and government, I think that that is the kind of metric I would rather go by because otherwise you're just going to live in a hole and never leave your house. And that's just not my calling. I love backyard projects. I worked for five years on the shooting gallery, which was a project to ski all 90 lines in Utah's Wasatch Range. But my dream with that was always to take my skills to bigger mountains, the Himalayas. And that has been my calling. And I can't deny myself my calling. And I believe that I can be a more effective climate activist by traveling to those places, showing people what's going on there, and showing the world what's there and what's to lose and why it's worth protecting. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So that's my lever, but everybody has their own way of affecting change. And some people it might be by being a vegan and biking and living in a earth structure that's made out of natural earth. But that's not my calling. Sure. That's not my lever. Well, and I've always felt like the kind of negative, super gnarly vitriol that I've seen you get, and there's nothing wrong with constructive dialogue, right? Or keeping people in check or at least bringing things to the surface to talk about. But when someone's nasty, one, that's just not cool. But two, I've always felt like, well, if you're talking shit, what are you doing on your own personal end? Let's just talk about that. Right. Because it's easy to talk shit. Yeah. And what I've come to learn with people who say mean things on the internet is that what they are attacking about you is really what they're unhappy about with themselves. 
And so you have to understand that it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. Right. So it's, but it's hard not to take that on. Well, sure. And I've talked, to, human. Jeremy, I've talked to Jeremy Jones about this with Powell. I'm like, I just, I'm having a hard time. And he's like, just don't read the comments. And I'm like, how do you just not read the comments? I mean, that's great if that works for you, but I can't not read them when right. they're get, when I'm getting barraged. Right. You have to defend yourself. You have to defend yourself. Yeah. yeah. I guess I need to turn commenting off or have someone filter them for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's brutal. I guess I need to turn the notifications off. Yeah. But then I think some people, they're like, she actually responded to me. Like, I've heard people say that. And then, I don't know, sometimes I think it is good to respond and to engage. Right. There's so nothing wrong just, with dialogue. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to know the best well, strategy there. And right. it was interesting, too, because when we sat down and recorded with Emily Harrington, we talked about you and we talked about the cyberbullying and that issue. And, and what she, she had a very insightful statement. And she said, what I try to remember when I get the person who's crazy is that something I've done or created or facilitated makes them feel like they have a platform where they can speak their mind with me. Mm-hmm. And so to respond to that person, I think is very empowering for you. And it was just a very, it was an, it was a cool insight, mm. you know, instead yeah. of saying like that person's fucking crazy. Right. You know, they're crazy. Yeah. But still. Yeah. I mean, I think it got really personal for me when I got a phone call, getting a voicemail kind of like crossed the line for me. And it's you like think? one thing if it's online, but it's another thing when you get a phone call. Yeah. And so I think that's. There's certain things that we can, you know, respond to, but then there's also certain kinds of ways of communicating where we need to step up as a society and say, this is wrong and we won't tolerate this. Yeah. This is abusive. This is toxic. Right. And so I guess that's a little bit of a difference of opinion because I don't think that all of those should be tolerated. No. Yeah. I don't think there's any difference of opinion yeah. there with yeah. anyone who's sane right. um, and has half a brain. And like I said earlier, I, I really appreciate the fact that you're so multidimensional and you're who you are, um, meaning you don't confine your activism to just outdoor industry specific, all of our selfish pursuits, you know, those issues. But, you know, you have a, I think, a fearless willingness to tackle and talk about some polarizing stuff like gender inequity, human rights, social causes. Have you always been wired that way? Yeah, I think so. I don't really like to beat around the bush. Like I'm a pretty direct person and I would rather like over communicate and overshare than like leave out something that could be important. I think it goes again back to my upbringing where like my family, like they go deep into discussion and to debate and that's sort of how we bond. Right. It's like deep intellectual debate. And so nothing... I mean, we'd go deep into all sorts of topics. And I think that just kind of comes from how I was raised. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's like one of those things where I have a hard time not speaking up. It's scary to speak up, but it's almost harder for me not to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the fact that you're five feet tall and have this huge voice. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. great. And I know it's it's very well established, the ridiculous amount of gender bias, naysayers, negativity, you've experienced while kind of ascending to this apex of ski mountaineering as a profession. Have you handled that? Because I just look at it and think that would be, that could be, feel like it was drowning me. Well, at times it does. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of setbacks with that. But however, I mean, it's a hard topic to talk about, (laughs) honestly, because I don't have all the answers. But 
growing up, I guess, just having three brothers, I wanted to do what the boys were doing and I wanted to have all the same opportunities and chances to go backpacking and to go skiing. And so I just want to keep going forward and doing what calls to me. And so I guess it's like more of a personal journey that for the first like 10 years of my career, it was something we could never talk about. You know, gender inequality and sexism and like Me Too. Me Too still hasn't hit the snow sports or outdoor industries. So I think we still have some work to do, but it's come a long way. So I guess I feel a big sense of relief that we can speak a little bit more freely about implicit bias and about gender inequality and how that can affect people and their ability to be the best version of themselves. Right. Yeah. So I guess even though it's really hard, it feels less hard than it was once. Right. Like the first year I went to the SIA, the Snow Sports Industry of America trade show, it was in Vegas. There were meetings at strip clubs. I've seen some things in my career and I can just say we still have a lot of work to do, but it's a heck of a lot better than it was. Right. Yeah. It's come a long way. Yeah. And I get to work with a lot more women now and I see a lot more people of color and disabled people and veterans and trans people and lesbians and openly gay skiers. And to me, I just think it's it's going well, like it's in a lot better place than it's been. We're making progress. We're making progress. And we- so as much as it feels like a heavy burden sometimes, it's so much better than it was. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say we also have a long way to go, but we don't make progress without voices like yours. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm just really grateful now that I feel supported in speaking up about these things that I've always kept to myself. Right. Yeah, because for a long time, I just sort of felt like I had to do the thing, but we could never talk about it. We could not talk about, well, just even having my film made with REI in 2017, like, I'd been wanting to tell that story about my half-brother and about my life, and I'd been wanting to tell that story for so long. And so having the funding and the opportunity to produce and create something like that, I mean, that was a huge amount of progress because typically women's films just don't get that kind of funding and visibility. Right. And so as, and as much as, you know, there's still a lot of inequity, it's, yeah, I'm happy where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. You have to stay positive. (laughs) Always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's hard to in this day and age, but. Yeah. I guess I'd like to see more strong men speaking up for gender because fighting for women's equality is not just a woman's job. Yeah. Agreed. We need strong male allies. We need more allies. We need more allies. And especially those alpha men. I'd really like to get them on board. Yeah. Yeah. To tie them in and bring them into the conversation. Because I think a lot of men, they're a little confused. They don't know what to do. Right. And I want to invite them to be a part of it and to support women and to support their leadership and to lift up not just other men, but, you know, to bring more people to the table and to help build a bigger table. Right. Yeah. And it's not like this fear of scarcity or loss, but rather what we can gain. Right. What do we have in common? Yeah. 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 And how helping someone else also helps you. Yeah. Because I think sometimes, and I've felt this before. Well, I mean, when I started my career, there's a really messed up thing that happened where like I'd have to wait for another woman to get sick or injured to get a spot on a team. So I remember with like one of my ski sponsors, one of the women on the team got Lyme disease and that's when I got sponsored because she was out. And that's just such a horrible feeling. Or for a film for Warren Miller, when another woman skier on the shoot broke her ankle, that was when they're like, we need another woman to fill in. As shitty as that is, that's like your only opportunity to be on the big screen or to be on that position in a team. So you kind of take it. 
And so that kind of bums me out for sure. Right. That it had to be like that. And I'm sure it's still like that in a way. Oh, that for sure. That tokenism. Yeah. But that's a horrible feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a horrible thing that it exists and then to be on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Do you think the gender bias in the outdoor industry is better or worse than the rest of the world? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it just, it's hard to say the rest of the world because I think there's some, it's like, are we looking at the rest of the business world or are we looking at like comparing it to an industry like teaching or nursing? But I think what's really interesting, whether it's teaching or nursing or outdoor industry or other industries, when you look at who's at the top, we still have a lot more work to do to get women in the highest levels of leadership. Right. Because you might have 90% of teachers are women, but when you look at who's the principal or who's the school administrator, you most often find men. Right. And it's similar in the outdoor industry. While I feel there have been gains made in recruiting and retaining female employees, when you look at who's at the top and the upper levels of management, whether it's in shops or whether it's in other industry positions, you see that it's mostly men. Yeah, it's very fair. Yeah, and also we need to also look at adding more diverse groups to yes. our industry and growing it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think lately the, our industry's made good good progress there, at least tried. Yeah, I think there's know, growing pains, but fully. I think that there's been positive action taken. And so I just think it's like also something we can do on a daily basis when we are like recommending someone for a job. Take the time to like seek out other kinds of other people from that you might not interact with on a daily basis. An example is I was asked to hire a videographer for a shoot for it was like an outside magazine cooking show. And I like know a bunch a few male videographers that I could have easily called, but I took the time to try to find out a female videographer and I found a whole list of them in, in Salt Lake that are really well established in the outdoor industry that I just hadn't interacted with before. So it was really cool. Yeah. There these people there's there's people out there and it's just a matter of getting out of our little bubbles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finding those voices. Finding those voices totally. and bringing them, you know, inviting them and trying to recruit them when you can. And letting them tell their story. Yeah. Or super valuable. Or filming through their lens. Yeah. Yeah, cuz it's a different lens right. than we've seen. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So I think in some ways it's like would be a cool change of perspective. Yes. Yeah. I've read time and time again that people who haven't met you personally have a distinct opinion about you as a person and as who you are with your athletic capabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems so, opinion seems so strong, mm-hmm. more so than I've, I think I've ever seen in my entire outdoor career. That's a strong statement. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just <laughs> see what's out there online and... Yeah. You know, what you've had to deal with. And you didn't read those TGR forums, did you? <sighs> I don't touch TGR. Okay. Sorry, TGR. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not sorry. The forums are a pretty nasty place. Why, why do you think that is? Because I'm, I'm just like so baffled by it. People ask me this question and I don't think I'm qualified to answer it. I don't know. I mean... Haters going to hate, maybe. No, I don't think that's the right answer because that like justifies... It's like saying boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hold people accountable for the nasty things they say and the toxic culture they perpetuate. I don't know. I mean, I never felt like I belonged in the ski industry and I, I didn't like, I didn't grow up with this. So I've always felt like sort of an outsider. And I think the way I see myself is probably the way other people see me as well. And that projects the other way too. So it could be part of that, that I'm not from 
this culture of snow sports and I didn't grow up in it. I don't know. I mean, I think it's good because people are paying attention. <laughs> and yeah, I just wish if people didn't have something nice to say, they wouldn't say anything at all. But another thing I tell myself is it's like flavors of ice cream. You know, some people don't like pistachio ice cream mm -hmm. and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Yeah. So maybe I'm like, I think I... I think that I'm a more well-liked version of ice cream, like chocolate. That's mm -hmm. how I would see myself. But some people don't like chocolate either. And right. so you just have, it's sort of like Hollywood people. Have you ever just watched a movie with an actor you don't like? Like, I don't really like Keanu Reeves. And it's nothing about his personality or anything. I just don't like him as an actor. Yeah. So I guess I think of it like that. Some people just don't. It's just, I don't know. Right. There's no reason. Yeah. It's just their taste. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true because... Now going, this will be, you know, the third season of this podcast. I've just been waiting for some kind of negative comment. Yeah. And we had a guy, you know, it was weird because he left us a four-star review and said, there's some really great stuff in here, but you guys just need to clear your voices. This vocal fry shit is, un he said, in-fucking-sufferable to listen to. I wanted to jump through the computer, which is like such a tiny version of what you've dealt with, and say, hey, asshole, you tried being sick with a respiratory disease at has no cure for three years. Yeah. So like, you're right. People project their own feelings onto that. Yeah. And I think that whole thing about vocal fry is just a load of crap because I think, I mean, people more say it about women than men. Always. And I think it's just another way for men to silence female voices. I think that there's just an innate disdain for a feminine voice. And there's still a lot of sexism that is rampant in our culture. And men don't want to hear women's voices. And I think that that maybe goes back to answer your other question is why people don't like me is because I won't back down and I won't shut up no matter how many times people tell me to shut up. And I think that there's something threatening about a woman who's persistent and strong and powerful and refuses to back down. Well, in the tree of trust here, yeah. that is very welcomed and encouraged. So Thank don't you. change. I appreciate it. It's funny because I, I take about a week to kind of prep for these, like where I read about people so that I know them, but I don't know them, you mm -hmm. know, and know, have enough of a baseline to not sound like an idiot. And I listened to a podcast where the interviewer said to you, when, you know, when I first met you, I would have never thought you were some badass mountain athlete because, and these are pretty much verbatim, because you... You didn't have that look in your eyes like Jeremy Jones has. And his next question was about gender bias. So I was I was shocked. How does something like that make you feel? Does it just perpetuate the, yeah, I, well, the problem? Be, before I answer that, I wanted to say that I'm sorry that that person said that about your voice. Yeah. Because it, that stuff sucks to read. But yeah. you put yourself out there. Yeah. You know, it comes yeah. with the territory. and Yeah but I know how. But thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so about that question, yeah, I mean, I kind of knew with that interview and that interviewer that I was going to get some weird questions like that, but there's a lot of unpacking we could do with that comment. Sure. And I think the fact that people have a bias about what a mountain athlete looks like, a mountain athlete comes in all sorts of different forms, whether you're small or tall, you colors. know, colors and shapes and sizes and different levels and so I just think there's a lot of unpacking to do to challenge our preconceived notions and stereotypes about who belongs in the mountains right yeah yeah I mean I think that's one of the things I've read a little bit about as I've delved 
deeper into the world of learning about implicit bias is that people that aren't the majority in a community have to do this thing like prove it again and like like this one article I read calls it PIA prove it again groups and they have to constantly prove that they're capable and they belong and that they've worked hard and they deserve to be in the position that they're in and that's something that a group who is the majority in that space doesn't have to encounter and that's something I get really frustrated with I feel like my accomplishments, if people look at my resume now with mountaineering, that they, my accomplishments should speak for themselves. But I still feel like I have to constantly prove myself over and over and over. And I still have to justify what I did, how I did it, answer a million questions right. in a way that I don't think the people who are a majority in this space have to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say if you're com- if that's something that comes up for you, that's something to confront and work on, right. that, that bias of prove it again. Right. Yeah, I would like to just see more men acknowledging, and white people, just acknowledging the privilege and the tailwinds that have got them to the place where they are. Right. I think that's a good start, is just to start to see the invisible forces. There's another podcast I listen to called Invisibilia, and also um, Freakonomics, I think they talk about this, but we never acknowledge our tailwind. Like when you have a tailwind, you never acknowledge that that's helped you get the fastest, your PR on Strava or whatever. Only when you have a headwind do you talk about it. So I feel like sometimes I get tired of talking about the challenges like my headwinds and that I have had a lot of tailwinds from the color of my skin and my upbringing and all these things. And so I guess I'd like to see more men also to do that, to acknowledge the privilege they get from traveling the world as like a cis, male, straight, heterosexual. Like, you get a lot of privileges from traveling the world in that position, especially in the snow sports industry. I mean, our industry, we are a super privileged bunch. And it's funny to hear you say that you're an outsider in the snow sports world because I think everyone is. Very few people are born in mountain towns and are on skis by the time they're two. I mean, that's pretty rare. I mean, we have one here, our, our sound engineer, but... This concept of, you know, outsiderism is yeah. is interesting to me. Yeah, the snow sports community, it could be a little bit more friendly. Yes. Yeah, that's something that's always bothered me is like, you know, on a powder day, how all the locals are like complaining about the beaters and like, we have a whole site that makes fun of Jerry of the Day. Like, I think Jerry of the Day, as much as people love it, I have a problem with it. I don't like to see people get injured or get close to death. Like some of those crashes, I can't watch them. I'm not saying that Jerry of the Day needs to stop, but I'm just saying that people could view it through a little bit different lens with a little more compassion because tourists are what keep our industry alive. Like we should be worshiping our tourists because they bring much needed economic revenue into our industry. And so this disdain for tourists and beginners and this bro culture of exclusivity and that's not warm and welcoming, I really think that needs to change. I agree. I have no patience for the bro culture. Yeah. And the last time I checked, everyone is a beginner at some point. Totally. I know. I mean, that's one of the things that's been really humbling for me about learning to climb 8,000 meter peaks and doing Choyu is like I had to go back to square one. Right. And it was really hard. But another thing, just going one more point about the bro culture, one of the ways that I've also had to confront, confront my implicit bias is towards other women. Because I was in this culture where there was just one woman per snow sports team, I really see a lot of other women as sort of threatening. And it's hard for me to be supportive sometimes to other women. So that's something I'm trying to work on with myself is a way to not see women as a threat and to be able to lift them up and support them 
and figure out a way to realize that there's enough, you know, enough cookies for everyone and enough pieces of the pie to go around. Right. Yeah. Embracing that. Embracing that Mm -hmm. and realizing that by helping someone else, I can help myself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That we can all work together. Right. So that's been a hard thing for me because I, and the other thing is that a lot of women to succeed in these spaces have had to adopt the norms of bro culture and toxic masculinity and to become very masculine themselves. So I think that that is another place where I have to work on is to be compassionate to the to start to make the connection that being very feminine and caring and compassionate can also make you a strong leader. Right. Like that's something we need to shift in our minds. Right. That you don't have to be toxically masculine right. to be a great leader in your yeah. space and you don't need to an- adopt those norms in order to succeed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Being a nice person is leadership in my mind. Yeah, I think that there's a great there's a great opportunity to have leaders that have some of those more traditionally those characteristics that we traditionally associate with the feminine mm-hmm. nurturing and caring and compassionate agreed yeah. yeah it seems like you present a fair amount yeah lately i've been asked to do a lot of slideshows yeah you're yeah. on fire yeah. yeah i like i really enjoy public speaking right i lettered in speech in high school nice. i was such a nerd so <laughs> <laughs> i felt like that was good training i'm curious when you present you know i'm assuming most presentations are co-ed mm-hmm. audience mm-hmm. but if you find yourself in the scenario where you're presenting to a group of women mm-hmm. exclusively is the messaging different i don't think i've ever oh actually one time at elf and glow sports for the tahoe backcountry women that's the only time i've presented to all women because i do a lot of corporate keynotes which are 90 percent men right. when i get to talk to all women i mean that group was really awesome um tahoe backcountry women's group that was so cool. I have, I felt so supported and such a warm energy from them. I don't think my message is that different, no. I think it's that I do sort of feel I can, with that group, I felt I could really be myself. Yeah. I think it would probably differ if it was a group of corporate women. But it's nice to have women's only spaces and it's nice to have men's only spaces. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be co-ed all the time. Because right. there's definitely like times I love to be out in the mountains with women. I think that that's maybe where that's like the ultimate thing is to be to do something really gnarly in an all-female team. Like that is a really cool. There's still a lot of big things that haven't been done by all-female teams. And I think those are very notable. Those should be in the history books because like first female ascent or descent, those are super cool. But first all-female team, I think those are really notable. Right. Yeah. And it's been interesting. And I asked that because Whitney Fail, who puts on the, and created the Tahoe Backcountry Women is, you know, I think a very intelligent and, and wonderful person. And she's told me that in those women-specific nights, which I laughed when you came because I had friends, men, uh-huh. giving me grief that they couldn't come. Uh-huh. And I wanted to say, this is the first sign that we have a problem. Mm-hmm. But what she told me was that the gals who present, the women who present to an all-female audience are very candid about you know just what you said they feel much more at ease and much more um accepted where they can really be themselves and and i'm just curious how we get that to everyone yeah i think that it depends on the people more than the gender because there's definitely groups of men where i feel like i can talk about whatever i want and maybe the environment too yeah and the environment too for sure we make a really big deal of getting well this is the first year we've had more female than male speakers at the speaker series 
That's super cool. And so we strive to do that. And so you strive to do it with the podcast too. And I'm always fascinated. And, and Hillary O'Neill and Kim Havel come to mind where they, you know, I ask them, how does it make you feel when someone says you're the first woman to do X, Y, and Z? And both of them said, well, I have mixed feelings about it because it, in many ways it's provided me a tremendous amount of opportunity. But I also want to be, you know, like you, for instance, I didn't, I didn't care that you were the first woman to ski the all of the shooting gallery lines to me you were just the fourth person right Mm -hmm. and so gender out the window you know it's really fascinating for me to hear their perspective on that of weighing those scales yeah I think it would be interesting for you to talk to Sasha DeJulian about that because Mm -hmm. she's been really she helped me change my whole view of that and whether it was important or not and I think it is important to talk about the first female and I don't think that it is a reverse sexism. I think it's a celebration and we should we should celebrate it. Yeah, and we should claim it. I don't think there's any reason not to. Cool. It's perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess she, her perspective on it really helped me change mine because I think that the mentality of not wanting to do something because it's the first female, like I think that's a little, to me, I don't know, I think it's worth celebrating. I think it's sort of rooted in the culture of that old school dirtbag climber culture where like you don't brag about what you do and you don't spray about it on social media and like mm-hmm. you're just this underground crusher who has the most duct tape by being the biggest dirtbag you win right and i just that's i think that is changing a little bit but i think it's important to sort of step into your power and to celebrate these big things and i think when you have a first the first female to do something that is a notable progression in the sport right and it's something that we should celebrate. Right. Yeah. I guess it's like, you know, talking about diversity and equity and inclusion, it's like not about minimizing differences. You know, I think that criticism of that is like, it's trying to minimize the differences rather than celebrate them. And I think there's a power in celebrating the difference. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And the achievement. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. You climbed and skied you this fall, which is the sixth highest peak in the world. Tell us about your summit experience. It was a real challenge for me because I thought that it was going to be pretty easy for me just looking at the mountain and the route and the snow and and how I'd done on other high altitude trips before and like with the support that we had and the crew I was like this should be pretty easy and so it was really surprising to me how challenging it was and I really thought I was going to go home and not summit like when I got sick and when I started to have the early symptoms of hape of high altitude pulmonary edema I was just like well, I guess I'm going home. This is over for me because I don't want to have anything to do with that feeling, that sickness that I had. So it was a bit much bigger um, task than I thought it would be. But also, I mean, it was a huge dream come true. And to go from like such a low, low to such a high, high, to be able to go from like thinking I was going to go home and then in four days recovering and then two weeks later to be on the summit... It was a roller coaster, and the whole thing of it was to be on one mountain for a whole month, it felt like the ultimate luxury, and just like rise and sleep with the sun and the night sky, and to move with the natural rhythm of the earth, and to sleep on the ground for a month, and to get dirty and not shower very often. It really, I guess, just grounded me and connected me to what it is to be a human And to feel so fragile, you know, to really feel the fragility of life. It reminds you how alive you are and how good it is to be alive. 
and then to share that all with my fiance now, my boyfriend at the time, and then I proposed to him on the summit, that was also a dream come true because there's not a lot of men that I would want to spend a month in a tent with. There's not a lot of people, men or women or, yeah, people of other genders. And so I was, it was just a dream come true. Yeah, it's hard to describe. I learned a lot and I really, I mean, it wasn't like I was the first person to ever do this. I was the 42nd person to ski Choi, 43rd person to ski Choi Yu and the 5th North American woman. Yeah, and the 15th North American man or woman. So that was pretty cool. I guess, yeah, it's just like the culmination of everything I've been training to do. So I was really happy. But you went into it with the expectation of obviously summiting and skiing, yeah. but you also had some ancillary plans. To propose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had talked to my fiance about it. And so my little brother got married this past summer in August of 2018. And I officiated his wedding, which was so fun. And they had the best wedding. And I was like, okay, I want to have the same wedding. Rob, we're getting married. And he asked my dad for permission first. And he knew I'd always wanted to propose. Like, it's something that we've talked about a lot. And one of my friends was like, you can't take that moment away from him. You have to let him do it. So I was like, well, you asked my dad, would I be taking this moment away from you if I did it? And he was like, no, you wouldn't. And I was like, do I have to ask your mom for permission? And he was like, yeah, you do. Fair. <laughs> so I asked his mom and I was like, Cindy, I was thinking about doing this thing, you know, proposing to Rob. I said to her, I know it's a little untraditional. And she said, no, that is the family tradition. I proposed to Jim, to Rob's dad. No way. Yeah. And so she's a very strong, assertive woman. And and then I was like, this is meant to be. And so, I mean, it wasn't a huge surprise to Rob, but I think that he kind of forgot about it on the way up. And so we had talked about it, but he was still surprised. And it was a really epic spot to get engaged. And the whole thing was a really beautiful testament to our love and to his patience and to just the teamwork and celebrating each other and the different ways and the different skills we bring to mountaineering. Right. Yeah. And not a lot, I, I don't know. I mean, I proposed to my wife, but I think many men wouldn't be comfortable with that for yeah. whatever reason, cultural norms, their own shit, whatever. Yeah. I was surprised. I didn't get on my own channel. I didn't really get any negative feedback, but one of my friends regret re retweeted it on Twitter and someone said, yikes, just like she should have waited for the man. Or, I mean, I think for some people it did sort of confront the norm and challenge that. But I would like to see more women proposing Why not? in 2019 and 2020. I don't think there's anything wrong with a woman asking for what she wants, for asking for a man's hand in marriage. And I think that only an insecure person is really threatened by that assertiveness. Yeah, why is it okay for a man to ask and not a woman or it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. So I think the first the first step to changing cultural norms is to have something come across as outlandish to start bucking the trend, right? Yeah. Yeah. Our engagement got featured on this big wedding website called brides.com <laughs> and I was so excited. Because I mean, as a woman on the mountain I can be like more of an animal and like more feral, but in I still am a like pretty girly girl i'm super excited about my wedding and so to be featured with that photo like on a really girly bridal website was <laughs> like an ultimate dream yeah yeah so it was really funny it's just an interesting paradox because like planning everest planning a wedding all at the same time it's like shopping for wedding dresses looking at eight thousand meter suits i'm like it's cool i love my life <laughs> it's a cool challenge right now yeah it's and i'm great. so excited about it yeah. about both challenges and yeah adventures yeah. Yeah. The wedding day is the best. 
Yeah, I'm really excited for the wedding. Where's your drive come from? I don't know. And I I asked myself that, and maybe this will jog something in in your mind, but I'm reading this book right now called Grit Uh by Angela Duckworth, Uh and it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's... I'm reading it and you know I've always been I played professional sports when I was young and I've always been very driven and and but I've always wondered like why well I think again I keep going back to my childhood but it's probably that struggle to survive in my family and with three brothers with three brothers and 19 nannies and parents that were never home yeah I think that could be part of it I'm not gonna lie (laughs) that I probably and I think I have a deep like insecurity I mean, on a real deep level, like, I'm not a happy person sometimes. I have a real dark side. And I think, like, when I was a baby, this is some deep thing that is weird to talk about, especially if you haven't read about attachment theory. But when I was a little baby, my parents were traveling. They were on a work trip. They took all of us with them to Japan when I was six weeks old. While we were there, our house in Minnesota burned down. There was a big fire. And so those formative weeks, first weeks of my life, my mom and my dad were both super busy rebuilding our house and dealing with this huge catastrophe. And so like as I've learned more about like confronting my darkness and my insecurity, I learned like that part of how we like see ourselves in the world comes from those first couple months of our lives, whether we have an insecure or a secure attachment with our caregiver. And so I think part of it is maybe that I did not have a secure attachment to my caregivers because they just, they were, everyone's doing the best they can, right? But they had two other children and like a huge house fire and this big thing, this big kind of catastrophic life event, like that's pretty traumatizing. And so when I was growing up, I really struggled with depression and anxiety. And I mean, I just hated myself for so long. Sometimes I still do. And I sometimes get really, really depressed. I think some of my drive just comes from that deep insecurity I have about not feeling like loved or that I'm just have this deep story that I'm unlovable. And so I just want to like put myself out there to the world. So prove yourself time and time again. Yeah. So maybe that's where it's from. I don't know. Yeah. 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 We're all a, we're all a ball of wax. Yeah. 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 And no one's perfect. And a lot of times it's messy. It is. Yeah. But you've talked pretty openly about dealing with anxiety and depression. And and I think that's really powerful on a completely different tangent than, you know, the gender issue and, you know, the sports issue that people can hear you talk about that similar to the way that Rob Carr did and opened up that whole, at least in my observation anyway, when he started talking openly about his depression, it yeah. was a cascading effect where yeah. other athletes started talking about it because mm-hmm. it's so common. It's so prevalent in our industry. I mean, when I was young, also, I really struggled with, like, addiction and abuse of alcohol. Like, I went to rehab when I was 13. And I never really talk about that because it's just one of those things where you kind of have to be on the other side of it to talk about it. I went to, like, a lot of psychotherapy and a lot of different therapists and life coaches. And, I mean, it's still something I am working on. But, like, learning more cognitive behavioral therapy things and learning that you are not your thoughts. Just for me learning that I was not my thoughts, that because I had a sad thought or I was depressed or a de- bout of depression, it didn't mean I was depressed. Or because at one point in my life I had been labeled an addict, doesn't mean I always needed to be an addict. And so I think for me I had to really rethink those ways that we frame 
depression and anxiety and addiction and learn to unattach myself from the labels. So I don't know if that's the right solution for everyone, but that really helped me to find healing and a space to move forward from it. Yeah, right on. Yeah, and then like meditation and yeah, the cognitive behavioral therapy, really going into the root of those thoughts and whether they were something I needed to listen to or not. Right. And then massage has also been really helpful. And I have a really awesome massage therapist I work with on a weekly basis in Salt Lake. And somehow, like, when I'm on the table, I have these, like, deeply stored issues, traumas that come up that are, like, not available for me to think or talk about, but they're in my muscles. And it's like a knot in my shoulder. That's when my grandma died. And I was rear-ended the same day, and my car was totaled. And it's, like, this pain that comes up, and it's, like, attached to this trauma that I'm still working to resolve. But it's not something I can really, like, through the work on the table with my muscles and my tissue, I feel like I'm able to undo some of the trauma and some of these things that I've had to confront. Right. Yeah, so that's been super healing. And I think so often we don't give ourselves space to have that, like, loving non-sexual touch that is so healing and powerful so i'm really grateful i found that massage could really help heal so i go every week right on (laughs) yeah when i'm home yeah 90 minutes chipping away at life yeah Yeah. and that is like helped me more than psychotherapy or life coaching because i'm a doer like i'm a person who does stuff with my body for a living like it's i love to talk and stuff but it just i can't get deeper below the surface i'm too much in my head yeah so that helps me get into my body yeah. and to my heart. Yeah. Are you comfortable with who you are at 32? 33. 33. Yeah, more than ever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, every year gets better yeah. and better. I got my first gray hair <laughs> in my eyebrow, which actually I'm not that comfortable with. Right. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> they can like, be eradicated. You though. can be eradicated. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like the things that I do change, like I dye my hair. I don't know. I just don't attach like a much deeper meaning to that. I just do me. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes a struggle, but you know, it's a work in progress. I think every year you get older, you get more comfortable with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I've read and heard and been told by my parents that, you know, you think you have your shit together at 25. You may or may not. Mm -hmm. You think you have it even more together at 35. 45, 55. So you're always saying these things to yourself, you know, but it's just an evolution as a human. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, going back to my whole conversation about my dad, it's been really hard to see my dad from being like the big, strong dad, you know, to being like someone when he falls skiing and seeing him try to get up, you know, like it's, that's been a hard thing for sure. So that's an interesting confronting thing. Right. Yeah. That we'll all have to go through. Time waits for no one. Yeah. And value the time now. Definitely. If you have it. Yeah. And I think it's rad that you're willing to talk about mental stuff, any of these things that really show you as just the human that you are. You know, I mean, we put athletes on pedestals and I think it's really empowering and hopefully people get a lot out of it, you know, when you're willing to say, here's what I struggle with. You know, yeah. it's being vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. It's good that we're at a point where we can have these these conversations. I'm still not super comfortable talking about all that stuff on social media. Yeah. Because I still have this fear that like Facebook and Instagram are selling all of our like health history and medical info to, which they are like the data mining and that whole thing that kind of freaks me out a little bit. So it's much easier to have this conversation here than it would be to have it online. Right. Just because I do worry about those privacy implications. Right. 
But at the same time, if it can make a few people's lives better, then yeah. Right. Then you hopefully, touch it's, f- hopefully it's worth it. Totally. It's worth yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. Where's Caroline Gleick in 30 years? Whoa. In 30 years? I'll be 63. I hope I still be ski mountaineering. I mean, maybe like a little mellower version. Of, I think I'll still be doing what I'm doing, climbing up mountains and ski de- skiing down them. I'd like to do more guiding. And I think you can still guide into your 60s. No problem. There's definitely mountain guides that are in their 60s. Smoking cigarettes in France. Yeah, right? Yeah. I think I'll still be a mountaineer. I mean, I want to do this till the day I die. And I think I'll like, you know, want to write a book or a couple books and... What else will I want? Oh, I might run for political office. That's like definitely something I've thought a lot about. And I could see myself wanting to do that when I'm in my 50s and 60s. Right. Yeah. Because I would not want to do it now. Not right. Not quite. Yeah. I still like to be in the mountains too much. Yeah. I'm still, but I'm still holding out for a female president. Yes. Yeah. It's an exciting time to change the current time. If you couldn't be an athlete, you know, when your professional career ends and the kind of limelight fades is the rest enough I think I would paint a lot yeah and write I love to write and I would still find a way to I think I'd like to write like wikipedia pages for people or find ways to continue to give back to the community yeah I mean there's so many things to do or go on an RV tour (laughs) of America and Canada (laughs) I don't know maybe I moved to Banff yeah and just like drive around and take pictures of the mountains there because it's a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things you can do. Right. So I never really get bored. Sweet. Yeah. There's a lot of books to be read. A lot of games of gin rummy to be played. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty easily entertained. So I could be really happy playing gin rummy all day with my family or with my whoever, really. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. I want to lay in the long tall grass And just listen to the songbirds sing I want Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Afterglow's production staff is a team of three. Myself, sound engineer Miles Heaps, and Kristen Hanna-Madigan, who also runs sound and produces each episode. The music of Season 3 is provided by the talented Old String Duo. Make sure to follow them on Instagram to enjoy more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. If you like what we are doing, please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. Season 3 of Afterglow continues on Monday, December 23rd with ultra runner Rory Bozio. (laughs) 